Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 42nd edition of Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, our second justice special supported by the Nuffield Foundation. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening here at the IFG and online. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. So Databytes are 42, 42, according to Douglas Adams, the answer to life, the universe, and everything, which is what you always get from Databytes anyway. I don't know about you, but I have to say I do share Douglas Adams' love of deadlines. Uh, our four brilliant speakers tonight have their own eight-minute deadlines to keep to, and we'll provide you with the answer to life, the universe, and everything to do with justice data. Though you do have to endure eight minutes of me trying to be funny with charts first, so try not to get too excited. <laughs> Though there's no need to look that sceptical. Tonight's event is on the record, and we are being live-streamed, obviously. On social media, it's hashtag IFGDataBytes, and we're live-tweeting from at IFGEvents. And as ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb42, capital S, capital DB. If you're here at the IFG, you can also raise your hand. Why does the IFG organize Databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government, show everyone what better data can achieve in practice, and put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does Databytes work? You're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a Databyte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. As you've heard, this is our 42nd event. You can watch the previous 41 on the IFG website. Tonight's event is our second Justice Data Special with the Nuffield Foundation, which will feed into a short report. If you have a particular interest in justice data, you should also check out Databytes 5, 6, 8, 12, 14, and 32. And of course, bonus ball number 40, our previous justice special. When we last met just a couple of weeks ago, I started by apologizing for having cursed Arsenal's season by prematurely celebrating their lead at the top of the table. Needless to say, things have got even worse since. And then we looked at Rishi Sunak's even stronger football curse. He'd wished Stockton Town good luck in a crucial playoff match which they lost on penalties. And then we noted how his own team, Southampton, tumbled down the league when he first became a minister. In his first season as prime minister, they fell to the bottom of the table, and they've now been relegated. But I might have cursed a political party as well. When we celebrated our 40th event and fourth anniversary, I no noted how only Plaid Cymru had the same leader as when we started the series. You can guess what happened next. Obviously, I didn't curse them. The misogyny, harassment, and bullying in their party did. But they have a new acting leader. So let's get the obvious Welsh language jokes out of the way, shall we? Uh, of course, why actually is a vowel in Welsh? So there. Now, I'm sure some of you in the room subscribe to the Politico Playbook newsletter. The afternoon edition helpfully tried to teach readers how to pronounce the plied acting leader's name. The following edition inevitably had to apologize. 
although it's still not as bad as the telegraph. So as an act of public service, I thought I'd teach you how to say Clear Griffith. So let's start with the surname. Everyone ready? Um, the double D is a hard TH sound, as in although, with a little bit of a roll on the R. So say after me, Griffith. Not bad. Now we come to the hard bit. So the double L sounds like this. Which is double L-ish if you're not used to it. So put your tongue against the roof of your mouth and towards your front teeth. And then breathe through your mouth. Give it a go. That's not, that's not bad. Have, have we done a COVID risk assessment for this one? No. Um, so yeah, it's more like a CL a cl, than anything else. So and then if you add an ear on the end, you get clear. So clear. Griffith. That's pretty good. Now, there's only one possible contender for the leadership that has so far come forward. <laughs> so say it after me, one word at a time. Reen. Yorworth. That's good. Now, while we're at it, how do you pronounce the first word? <laughs> Plied. Plied, very good. Second one? There was, some, there was some mixed pronunciation there. So it should be Cymru, not as a lot of people think Cymru. You need a W, which is another Welsh vowel, to get that sound. Should we try one more? I definitely heard one yes there. So... <laughs> So let's try one more. <laughs> so, Llanfair Pwllgwngilch o Gerich yn Drobl Llantasilio Go Go Go. Probably avoided an international incident there, haven't we? Or at least the Telegraph would think it was an international incident. Now, of course, the biggest story since we last met, the only thing we've been talking about here at the IFG, was the big annual voting jamboree full of glitz and glamour and parties. Some people on song, others rather more off-key. Yes, the local elections allowed us to find out what people in different parts of the country think about things. Parties asking voters, save all your crosses for me, before the time arrives for making your mind up. It was a good night for Labour, the sort of result they want to see some more, and no doubt had them reaching for the Bucks Fizz. I have to say, I didn't realise the next lyric after Want to See Some More is about bending the rules of the game. We had some of that during the local elections, too. Now, as for the elections themselves, there were gains for Labour and the Lib Dems. The Greens grabbed majority control of a council for the first time, and it was a worse night than expected for the Tories. You might say, an electoral Waterloo. Almost as bad as the UK at Eurovision, where we went from second with Sam Ryder last year to nearly last this time. Now, I'd love to show you some more Eurovision charts and torture you with more Eurovision puns, but I'm afraid I simply don't have the space, man. But we do have space for our four fantastic presenters this evening. First up is Lizzie Cook from City University on the Violence, Health and Society Consortium for Better Data and Better Use of Data on Violence. Second is Amy Caldwell-Nichols from HM's, HM Courts and Tribunal Service. Are we nearly there yet? Delivering the HM CTS data strategy. Third, joining us virtually, will be Karen Broadhurst of Lancaster University on valuing administrative data for family justice reform. And we'll be back in the room for our final speaker, making her second and a half appearance at Databytes, Natalie Byram for the Legal Education Foundation and the Justice Lab on Justice Data and Manifesto. Now, with four strong speakers, it was a real challenge to decide the order they would present in. 
Uh, I'm very sorry that the sequencing uh, that we chose was not to your satisfaction. I was... A, a <laughs> order, 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 order. That is totally not acceptable. Of course, you'll be able to watch this online afterwards and in any order that you would like. Our next data bites will be Monday the 5th of June. It's not themed, so fittingly in the aftermath of Sweden's Eurovision triumph, it's a smorgasbord of very different subjects. We'll then be back on Thursday the 6th of July, and then with these dates after our summer break. Some of them are later in the month than usual because of party conference and other events. A huge thank you to the Nuffield Foundation for supporting this second of two Justice Data Specials. We need sponsors to keep Databytes going, so if you'd like your name up here in lights, then please get in touch with my colleague, Pratesh. And if you work in the public sector and might be interested in speaking or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. That is more than enough from me. Uh, we hand over now to our first speaker, Lizzie. Great. Um, so thank you, Gavin. Uh, as well as being based at the Violence and Society Centre, I'm also a co-investigator on a large UK prevention research partnership uh, funded consortium to investigate violence, health and society, or vision as it's shortened to, um, which is what I'm going to talk to you about in the next eight minutes. Now, violence, perhaps like justice, is a problem that bodies across government and the third sector are, are interested in, from justice and healthcare services, policing, politics, economics, law, data science, criminology, sociology, um, providers of specialised services like refuge, social workers, and many, many more. Now, the specialisms that each agency and service offers is absolutely integral to prevention. They each offer a window on the same problem, but with a slightly different solution. However, the data generated in each of these systems often remains fragmented. The systems themselves differ in the populations they engage with, whether it's victims or perpetrators. Uh, the types of services they offer, perhaps employment, housing, education, um, or perpetrator intervention, and also the types of violence that they engage with, whether that might be domestic or sexual violence, for example. The data that is collected is scattered across different systems with different priorities, funds, operational constraints, and definitions. Now, what Vision aims to do is to integrate theories and data on violence for violence reduction, also for recovery following violence, and which allows for connected policy and practice responses. Now, I won't go through the full extent of the project here, not only due to time, uh, but simply just because I wouldn't do justice to my colleagues' work. Um, but Vision seeks, as you can see, to work across disciplinary and sector responses and boundaries. What I do want to do is bring your attention to 2.2 homicide here. Um, as a particular example is the type of work that's going on in Vision to show how this kind of ecosystem of data on homicide can be harnessed to better understand and therefore prevent homicide in the future. Homicide data. Unfortunately, homicide data are not in short supply. Every year, there are on average 500,000 deaths from homicide across the world. A substantial majority of what we call homicide data 
are administrative data. These are data collected, as you might guess, uh, when deaths are recorded by public agencies, so police, ministries of justice, interior, mortuaries and, and hospitals. And these data, again, very similar to other areas, um, are used as evidence with the policy and practice as a means of empowerment for advocates, whether that's legislation or for uh, public awareness campaigns, but also potentially more problematically as well if we're thinking about over-policing of certain communities and certain perpetrators. So the first question that I really wanted to establish with this work is what dimensions of gender and other inequalities can be captured in administrative homicide data? What is out there? Who owns it? What does it say and about who? Again, I'm not going to explain the, the kind of full map of homicide data or subject you to it, but it is spread again across justice, health and society. Increasingly on the left, we see that justice data is engaging with uh, focusing on perpetrators, police primarily deal with perpetrators, so that makes sense. Health, um, primarily mortuary and mortality data, primarily focusing on the incident. Um, they're often interested in the death, the cause of death and the nature of that death. Um, as well as civil society, which is primarily focused on the victim. So who she was, what happened to her, how and why. Um, to understand the kind of breadth of administrative data in this area, what we're doing is an evidence synthesis to review that, trying to establish the prevalence of homicide. Um, that is dis disaggregated firstly by relationship. We want to know how many, for example, parents kill children. We want to know how many children kill parents, how many partners kill pa uh, partners. We want to know about the sexual aspects, how many homicides are recorded where sexual violence is also taking place. And if useful and applicable, and usable um, some of the motivations behind homicide as well. Now, what this work has found so far is that there are different ways of accounting for gender and gender dynamics in homicide. What we often get is a scale and extent. We get whether the homicide was committed in a domestic or intimate context, so we get the types of homicide. But what we also need and what we get much less of data around is things like the risk of victimization, factors which might increase or decrease the likelihood of a, of a homicide. For example, separation, divorce, verbal threats, particular acts of abuse, whether that might be, for example, strangulation. We also miss things around relationship dynamics. Um, are these uh, victim perpetrator married? Do they live together? Do they, ch do they have children? And how does that affect their relationship? Patterns of behavior as well, so whether that that abuse happens in the context of coercion, control or manipulation of financial freedoms, um, how they choose their friendships, their ability to leave the house, to even have control of their own mobile phone. We want to know also if a victim was in contact with um, services, with the police, if they were in contact with the police, how many times? How many times did they seek help? How many times were perpetrators arrested? Essentially, how many times were arrests made and other restrictions put in place that did not work in this instance? And in cases that they weren't in contact, we want to know the barriers. We want to know why. Why were they not in contact with services that could have helped them? And what prevented victims from, helping, uh, from seeking help? Um, in, that kind of, in that specific context, it's really important to remember that family experiences are central to that. So in work on domestic homicide, 70% of domestic homicide victims are first most likely to report their experiences of abuse to a family or friend. So family experiences of that abuse is absolutely central to going forward. Similarly, mental and physical health, did they have physical or learning disabilities? How did they, again, this affect victims' access to services and their relationship with the perpetrator? Previous convictions, 
Um, were they known and were they known for DVA? And history, were there other histories of other types of abuse and had this perpetrator done this type of abuse to other people? So overall, just a few of the, the many different types of dimensions um, that we need to understand and facilitate prevention. So the second part of this work, um, and this is what I hope the next stage of this work will provide insight to, um, is about looking at uh, narrative data. So in England and Wales, after every domestic homicide, a domestic homicide review, a DHR, is conducted. Now, a DHR is a multi-agency review which provides a chronological record of the circumstances leading up to a victim's death. They offer insight into many of the dimensions that I mentioned before, gender-based motivation, sexual aspects, system changes, changes in service access locally, nationally, system referrals and contacts, and underreported homicides as well, thinking here particularly around uh, domestic abuse-related suicides. However, we lack any centralised system for collecting DHRs in one place. Um, and in addition to that, we are unable to extract information from them in any systematic or routine or timely manner. And I think this is important, and I think this is important now, um, because data do their work in relation to one another. Administrative homicide data provides us with scale and insights into demographics, but to get to the core of understanding of gender differences and relationships and power dynamics, and also inequalities in risk and change, we need to recreate and reconfigure how we think of other forms of homicide data and how we connect them together. That's everything. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lizzie. Um, a reminder, if you're watching us online, you can submit questions using Slido. It's bit.ly slash slidodb42 if you're not already on the right page. Um, for those of you in the room, uh, you can raise your hand and I will come to the room first. Um, do tell us who you are and where you're from if you can. Remember, we are on the record. Do keep your questions short as we will be up against the clock and do wait for the microphone to arrive. So we've got a question there and I'll come to you next time. Hello, Gemma Tello from the Institute for Government. Um, could you say a bit more about what the major barriers are, if any, to achieving the sort of vision that you're outlining there for better quality data? Yeah, um, I can list many. <laughs> um, so I think working day to day with this kind of data, interdisciplinary data is, is an interdisciplinary conversation is really, really difficult, especially in relation to violence. So my director of the Violence Society Centre does that right there. She works in health, I work in justice. And having conversations about the same issue is actually really difficult. Um, we both have very different ideas about um, what even language, so around what we consider an outcome, is very normal in health, but I don't understand what an outcome is. Um, thinking about uh, essentially kind of things around what root causes are. And so there's a, there's a first issue around interdisciplinary um, language and differences across that. Um, in terms of other forms of integration, there's obviously like lots of questions to be asked around essentially whether all of these data sets, if they're looking, if they're a window on the same problem, they're gathering different bits. So justice focusing on perpetrators, health focusing, focusing on incidents, and then civil society focusing on victims. It could be possible that they're essentially looking at different sides of the same shape. And it might be that it's not there. Um, but it's also, and I think you know, this was where ADR comes in and is really important, to be able to trace someone and someone's experience across 
multiple parts of the life course, a trajectory across education, across housing, across their experience of the criminal justice system, but also other parts, so civil justice and family justice, I think is really important. Um, and I'm trying to think of the other bugs that I have around this, like the difficulties of this kind of work. Um, I think mainly, yeah, data access and data sharing. I think everyone is rightly so really protective around the data because it is incredibly sensitive data. We're talking about people that have gone through really, really difficult times, whether they are victims or perpetrators. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of discussion to be had about how we actually treat it and how we treat it in the right way and what organisations are willing to share with each other as well, especially when they have potentially different uh, priorities. Thanks. I have a question at the back and then we'll come down the front next. Thank you, Martin McKee, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Do you see any realistic prospect of getting more detailed and consistent data from coroners' inquests? And have you looked at, is there anything we can learn from other countries? I'm thinking of the much better data, for example, on work-related suicides in France compared mm -hmm. to the absence of such data here. Yeah. So DHRs, I think, are very similar to the coroners' reports that we'd find inquests. Um, what I really, what I do look at in comparison and kind of like a really good example of it would be the system in Australia. So they have um, quite integrated data in terms of they have their coroner's reports, they have the, the Australian Institute for Criminology and the National Homicide Monitoring Project and they have it linked together. So you have that rich, incredibly detailed narrative data as well as that demographic and, and aggregate data that you need to understand the extent of a problem. Um, so I entirely think it's possible. I've seen Australia do it, so I would like to see it. But I think, considering DHRs, I think... So DHRs came in uh, an act in 2004. They were introduced in 2011. They've been around for 12 years, and we're, we're still a little bit far back in terms of actually centralising that data. I'm not sure how the coroner system compares to that. Um, but I worry that DHRs are already meant to be that far ahead and we've still not got a kind of centralised repository for it yet, although the Home Office is definitely doing a lot of work in that area right now. Thanks. Uh, we've got a question down here. Thanks. And I'm guessing because of the type of data that you're talking about, that some of this is split four ways across the four UK nations. Yeah. Does that present opportunities for like pockets of good practice to come up or can you say a little bit more about that variation across the UK? Yeah I think we've got I can't say too much about it because I vision is so massive that we've got work people that are working specifically on the integrated data set and they work across I think they've got public health Wales data um, then you have got NHS England and Chris data from localities don't we so it's quite difficult to understand the variations across those different like those four different nations um, yeah, that's a bit of a fluffy answer to your response, but I'm, I want to kind of forward you to Sally, <laughs> who will have a better answer for you. But I definitely think there's a way of understanding better practice, just in, like, DHRs, for example, England and Wales had them for, what I said, 12 years. Um, Scotland is, is in the process of setting them up. Northern Ireland, they're having discussions. So there's definitely a way to, to actually understand the best practice going forward. And even so in how we set up other review systems. So the discussions about offensive weapons reviews, which is currently um, being, being rolled out, you know, whether we can apply a lot of the lessons that we've done with DHRs in relation to offensive weapons reviews and actually take that forward, or whether we're potentially repeating some of the, the problems or, or, yeah, 
yeah, but Sally. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, just, just a reminder, if you're watching us online, please do give us your questions via Slido. It's bit.ly slash slidodb42. Uh, I'll come back to the room for the next question. Who wants to go next? Otherwise, I'm, I'll, I'll have to ask a question. Nobody wants that. Uh, we've got one there, and then we can come to Gemma again. Hi, is this on? Yep. Hi, Sam from the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. Um, you mentioned Australia as being a good example of good practice. I just wonder if there are any other pockets globally of good practice that you've come across. Um, obviously, international data flows is a real patchy area, I guess you yeah. could say. So just very curious if there are other bright spots. Yeah, um, I'd say the US and New Zealand as well. Um, and this is, again, I suppose a, a bias within how domestic violence fatality review systems develop. It needs money. And you do find that, yeah, US, New Zealand, Australia, they have money behind the homicide data collection systems. The US has the National Clearinghouse. Um, and also, I think the US, from the administrative data that we've been looking at, they have the, I'm trying to remember the, it's a national death reporting system, is that, yeah. Um, and again, that, that brings together, I think, lots of different forms of data, and it's not kind of taking a kind of one-sided, one-dimensional approach to what data is. Um, so I'd say, yeah, US, New Zealand, and Australia. Yes, very kind of biased in that view, but yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Gemma. Sorry, me again. Um, I was just wondering, have you had any wins in your project that you think others can learn from your experiences and achieve the same? Um, wins. So <laughs> I'm going to get really <laughs> um, reflective. Wins, yeah. I think. <laughs> I think the one of the biggest wins for us was actually getting such. At the very beginning, we have 32 researchers that are from law, international politics, health economics, criminology, sociology, data science, all in the same room and having the same discussion and not wanting to <laughs> um, throw each other out of the room, I think is a really good uh, win. But also, I think in more concrete terms, the TRE, the Trusted Research Environment, I mean, actually having a safe environment for central, like bringing the data together is a massive, massive thing to set up in the first instance and allows us to actually move forward. Um, so I'd say, yeah, in a tangible sense, that, but then also, yeah. <laughs> well, Lizzie, perfectly timed. Uh, thank you for getting us off to a brilliant start this evening. And our second speaker tonight is Amy. I'm hoping that this is going to work with the uh, clicker as well. Right. Am I starting? Uh, whenever you're ready. I'm ready. So thank you very much uh, for inviting me here today. And I'm here to tell you a bit about how we're getting on with progress of the HMCTS data strategy. My name is Amy Cordonicles. I'm Deputy Director for Insights and Analysis at HMCTS and I also lead our data function. I've been at HMCTS now since 2020, but before that, I was Director of Performance and Analytics at the Royal Free London NHS Foundation Trust. And it was working at the hospital that really helped me discover my passion for using data to improve public services. While I was there, I worked really closely with both operational and clinical staff to improve our data and to help improve support um, better patient care. So 
I've seen really upfront how much better data can make a difference to the frontline delivery of services. I joined HMCTS because I could see the exciting work that was being done in justice. And I haven't been disappointed since I joined. And you can see the evidence for that in the support from MOJ for projects such as Natalie Byron's report into the use of data at HMCTS, the MOJ data strategy that was published last year, the work that's been done by Data First with support from ADR UK to make justice data available for accredited researchers, and also our recent evaluation and prototyping strategy that was published only a few weeks ago. And there have been some fantastic achievements from this already. And that includes sharing eight data sets via the ONS Shared Research Service and also the SAIL Data Bank. We've also had 13 projects delivered that have created new insight into the criminal justice system, and there's more on the way. And we also have some new supporting materials to help capture what we've learned about our data and to help future researchers access it. I care deeply about good documentation. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the work that we've been doing more recently to implement uh, the HMCTS data strategy. Now, we published this at the end of 2021, and it sets out our vision for how HMCTS is going to become a data-driven organization. And what this means to us is that we want to be able to understand our users better so that we can tailor our services to meet their needs. We also want to be able to identify ways in which we can improve our operational effectiveness. And importantly, I know for this audience, we want to be able to share our data for the purposes of research and innovation. As it sets out in our document online, I'm not going to go through all of this, don't worry. Um, there are five pillars to our work. And we've been working across all of these, but a lot of our work today has been focusing on the first one, which is how we gather, hold, and curate the data that we need now and into the future. Before I get into the work we've been doing, I did want to provide you with a bit of context about the data function at HMCTS. Our team receives over 1,000 new requests for data each year. And that comes from internal users, it's also FOIs, it's parliamentary questions from ministers or from other external data requests. And of that, we get at least one a week which is a complex request that needs to go to our data access panel. We're also now maintaining over 25 new Power BI dashboards that we've built over the last few years to help support operational needs. These are accessed by a new central hub that we've set up for HMCTS users, and we've had over 1,000 unique users access it in the last year. And these reports are drawn from 35 different data sources, and there are more of those to come. So the demand that we're facing is already big, and it's still growing. And that means that sometimes it feels <laughs> like this. <laughs> um, I'm quite glad that I'm not these guys, um, but very much we are building the car as it is still moving. That said, we've made some great progress over the last few years, and I'm really proud of what we've achieved. Firstly, we've built a new data platform. As evidence of how much I love platforms, this is actually one of my pictures that I have at home. <laughs> we have engineered our data out of our reformed systems. Firstly, we've been focusing on replicating the data that we've been able to get out of legacy systems. 
but soon our new platform will help us work with the new data that we're going to get to deliver new insight. And these are crucially the foundations that are going to underpin our work. We've also revamped our data access process, making it easier for us to receive requests and to make decisions quickly. And that's many thanks to Olivia, who's in the room with me. And we've also, quite recently, formalized our senior data governance panel. And this is going to help guide our decision making on novel and contentious issues. So we've made some really good progress, and I'm pleased with it. But as the title suggests, we're not nearly there yet. There is still a huge amount for us to do. We have picked some priorities that we're working on this year. So first of all, we need to migrate to our new platform. All of our pipelines are currently spread across our legacy and reform systems. But moving to our platform will help us use the new tools and automations that we have, such as automated testing that will help us check our pipelines early if, uh, to, to address failures. It will also help us draw better links between our data sets. Second, we're planning to develop our data catalog. And that will give us much better visibility over our data sets and to help us exploit them in new and innovative ways. Thirdly, we're going to implement our strategic approach to master and reference data. And this will build on the work that we've already been doing, but it will help us achieve the fabled one version of the truth for these vital data sets. And finally, we're planning to develop our data governance internally so that we can better control, trust, and effectively use our data. In time, we do plan to share the benefits of this work with our external users to make sure that we can get them the most out of the investment that we've been making. So I'm really excited about the possibilities that we're starting to open up with our data. And I hope this has given you a flavor of our progress. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Amy. Um, Give well, myself too well much time for questions. <laughs> should, should we take a break? Or, no, <laughs> we won't. Um, I'll come to the room second this time. We've already got a question in online. And again, a reminder, please do use Slido. It's bit.ly slash slidodb42, capital S, capital DB. You'd be sick of me saying that by the end of the night. Um, Professor Stephen J. Newton asks, how do you assess the cost benefits of data provision? Um, that is an extremely good question, and I think it's one that many people grapple with uh, across government. I think for the moment, it's very clear to us that demand for data is extremely high, which indicates to me that there are some significant benefits to the investment that we're making with data. Um, but it is an area that we are developing and, and working on, as with other government departments, and I hope that we will be coming up with some excellent answers. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I'll come to the room next. Who would like to ask the first question? Uh, at the back there, and I'll come to you next. Thanks for that, Sam, from Microfinancial. Um, with the full launch of the Senior Data Governance Panel, will you be publishing minutes? And assuming the answer is yes, on the process of getting to this point, what lessons do you think others, others in government who are further behind you on a similar path should know, you know, mistakes not to make, that sort of thing? Um, so it's been a, it's, it's, it has been a, a long journey, and I think we've learned a lot with help um, from many of our members of the Senior Data Governance Panel, so I'm sure you can ask Natalie for uh, some of her observations on the process. Um, 
so I think le lessons that I would learn is that, that it has taken us quite a lot of time to really understand the questions that we are going to want to be able to ask and exactly what we are asking the panel to do. And I think developing that thinking has taken the time, but I'm pretty pleased with where we have got to on that. And I'm very happy that we now have got our data, the, the panel that we can now start taking these issues to. Thanks. Oh, uh, we will be publishing the minutes. Brilliant, thank you. We've got a question there. Hi, I know you've, um, you've worked in healthcare and um, healthcare is very rich with data. But one of, the, one of the questions I want to ask about comparing healthcare to the, the court service, the, the tribunal service, are you, one of the big practical problems in the service that data can address, either or has been addressed or can address? Because I think one of the problems in healthcare is we have big problems and we don't point the data towards solving those problems. Um, so I think one of the hypotheses that I had when I left healthcare and moved into HMCTS was that there were going to be quite a lot of similarities in terms of the problems that you were facing. And I think broadly speaking, that is true. Um, we are trying to deliver an operationally effective service that can um, meet user needs and do so in a timely way. And so there are some core operational problems that I think data can help us address. So an example from some work that, that we did a couple of years ago, um, we looked at the pathway that digitised cases were taking through our divorce system. And we could start looking at actually where some of those cases were circling around um, a point in our process. And because we were able to identify that with data, we were able to make a change to the process that stopped that from happening. And that meant that we could reduce the waiting time for those cases. And that's just, I feel like that's a small example of what the opportunity might look like when it comes to operational performance. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I'll go online for the next question. This is from Zara King at the FCDO. Good evening to you. What has the senior buy-in been like? What level of budget and resource has been given to this work to move it forward? <laughs> I believe that there are uh, some answers in recent PAC hearings. Um, that may speak to budget and resources. I don't have those numbers off the top of my head. I'd say overall, the senior buy-in to data work at HMCTS and MOJ has been excellent. Um, and it was one of the reasons why I was attracted to come work at the MOJ, as I, as I said in my talk. Um, so overall, I think there was huge demand from senior leaders, but also a huge tolerance for um, some of the, the, the basic foundational work that I've been talking about. Um, for us to give us the space and time to get that done. And that's been incredibly, um, I mean, it has been a great experience. Excellent. Um, we've got another senior leadership related question from Tom King. How will the senior data governance panel relate to new AI governance central services as planned in the AI regulation white paper? I suppose the, the broader question that he asks is, is there leadership level coordination across government? Um, that is a good question that I do not know the answer to, but I can certainly take that one away. <laughs> it's out of a consultation at the moment, the AI white paper, if anybody else wants to get involved as well. Um, I will take the next question from down here. Hi, is it Emma Gordon from ADI UK. And I, I commend everything you've done in HMCTS to, to open up access to data safely and securely. And we work with 
a lot of government departments about doing exactly this. And where there's an agreed process within a department, it's very straightforward. Where there's no process, clearly it's really difficult to make headway. So I really, really commend all the work you've done on this. But really interested also that you said you're still building you know, the process as you, as you go forward. How have you kept that buy-in from senior leaders that it's okay to do that while still, you know, it's a very rightly cautious organisation around opening up access to data. So, Jivine, how have we been able to open up access to data while we're still doing some of the work that I've described? So, um, culturally, I'm sure some people in HMCTS would love to give no data out until you've got a fully agreed, tried and tested process. But you're not doing that. You're, you're kind of hitting a halfway mark, aren't you? So, um, I mean, I think we have had some of this process in place for a while. So I think that's given us some confidence that we can do so and we can do so safely. And we've been working with some researchers over an extended period of time, which, again, I think has given us confidence. Um, but overall, I would say senior leadership in, in HMZTS and MOJ see the value in this work. Um, and I think that's the reason why we are um, happy to carry on trying to do things that we think are sensible and proportionate um, while we still build out um, the full process and governance that we'd like to have in place. I'm going to go online for the next question. This is from my IFG colleague, Sophie Metcalf, who's picking up on one of our previous uh, justice presentations, I think, as well. You mentioned lots of your work is focused on how you gather, hold and curate data. Are there any particular data gaps at the moment you'd like to see filled and how do you decide what to prioritise? Um, so I feel more that we have an awful lot of data um, and the challenge is how can we best manage the information rather than feeling that there are some significant data gaps, although we often identify there's something that, that we would like to collect and that we don't currently. In terms of prioritisation, that is a perennial problem. Um, and I think it is a mixture of trying to understand, well, what do we think are the benefits of uh, the work that we're being asked to do, the costs associated with them, the resource that we have available, and the expertise that we have available as well. It is a constant process. Excellent. I'll take a very quick final question. Keep it short, please. Anyone in the room? Right down here at the front. Um, Lex Jones, Registry Trust, uh, you've talked very compellingly about some of the priorities for uh, criminal justice and, and data gathering. Can you speak a little bit about civil justice in eight seconds? <laughs> uh, I, I, think, I think that is a topic that probably requires more than the two seconds that I have left. Um, but I think the work that we're doing applies equally across the rest of our civil family and tribunals. Um, this is not a, a, a data strategy that only applies to criminal justice at all. So very much those data sets are being prioritised alongside. Brilliant. Well, Amy, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Our third speaker is Karen, who's joining us virtually. So good evening, Lancaster. This is London calling. <laughs> Hello, Gavin. Can you hear me OK? We can indeed. And we have your slides up on our TV screen. So uh, ready whenever you are. Thank you, Gavin. So hello, everyone. I'm delighted to be here at the Institute for Government, albeit remotely and behind these slides. But I, Gavin assures me I will appear in about eight minutes. 
Um, so I'm going to be speaking to you today about the value of data produced routinely by the family courts and related agencies um, to understand out to, to help us understand family justice, but also to catalyse change. So this is a talk really which is about um, speaking to questions that have been raised already in the audience today about the value of data and the impact that can be achieved. Um, before I start, though, I just want to say a few words about why we need a better understanding of the family justice system. Um, so this week, uh, there's been lots of talk about criminal justice, um, but there are the, there are some very specific circumstances in relation to the state of knowledge um, in relation to family justice. And I think it's fair to say that family justice is a long way off understanding itself and is, is rather lagging in relation to other uh, fields of justice. So to illustrate this point, I'm just going to go to my next slide, uh, this picture of a dartboard. So... I'm going to go straight now to the words of the president of the family division back in 2017. So this was at the inaugural Bridget Lindley Memorial Lecture when the president, um, his, his words have since been described as a terrifying metaphor. And what he said was, um, when judges are making decisions about children in the family courts, it's like throwing a dart at a dartboard, but with no feedback as to whether you've hit the board, the bullseye, or actually somebody else in the room. So you can see why that is a fairly scary prospect. And whilst Andrew is um, referring to judges, judges are not alone in lamenting an absence of evidence and feedback in the family justice system. So whether you're a policymaker, a frontline practitioner, or indeed a family member, there are major holes in what we know about family justice. So why do these holes matter? Well, they matter greatly because, as I, I probably don't need to say to you, the audience today, the family justice system is authorised to make the most intrusive decisions about families. Um, it can change the course of childhood, it can send children to live with strangers in foster care, and it can permanently sever um, parental rights. Okay, but fortunately, we are on an improvement journey. <laughs> so positive on this slide. Um, so thanks to key funders, data owners, academics and analysts, and the growing provision of data safe havens, we are turning the tide on this rather dismal um, state of affairs. And obviously, in order to progress on an improvement journey, we absolutely need cooperation um, between all of these parties. The Nuffield Foundation has been really instrumental in funding justice research for many years. Um, and ADR UK, I think, is, a is exemplary in um, coordinating all of these aspects. OK, so now to the real world applied example. This is all very higher level in eight minutes. Um, but I'm turning to the my work at the Centre for Child and Family Justice Research at Lancaster, where I'm based. Um, for more than a decade, we've been using admin data, um, initially produced by CAFCAS and more recently by CAFCAS Cymru, note the pronunciation. And um, if you look at this list of questions, you can see the scope of our work. So from questions of consistency in decision making through to family, family experience, um, with our sort of key collaborators, in particular the Sale Data Bank at Swansea University, we're building a knowledge base about family justice. So I'm going to turn to the last question on this list, is, um, which is what proportion of parents return to court? It's a fairly basic question, but we started to answer this in 2015. And unlike the criminal justice system, which understood a lot about recidivism, um, this at the time was a problem with no name. Um, so with generous funding from the Nuffield Foundation and support from CAFCAS, the data owner, 
um, the team I was leading at the time was able to produce the first estimate of women's return to court. And this provided firm evidence that actually women's return to court was far from unusual. In fact, um, one in every every four women who were appearing in family court care proceedings were at risk of return. And for the very youngest women, this was increasing to one in three. So it's, it's a pretty routine feature. Um, using CAFCAS data, so large-scale administrative family court data, we we're also able to pinpoint the age profile of mothers, the scale of infant removals close to birth, and that a significant proportion of mothers were pregnant again before care proceedings had concluded. And since then, we've produced estimates for Wales, which Welsh Government is very pleased about, um, given they have the highest rates of children in care in the UK. So just on to my next slide. Following that, we also produced the Born Into Care series, which has focused on the very youngest children in the family justice system, newborn babies. And before we uh, developed this series, the category newborn did not appear in any um, national statistics. And this is despite the fact that um, there's considerable emphasis on, in policy on the importance of infancy. So just to give you a couple of headlines from this research. So what we've done is um, we have exposed some very faulty thinking about pregnancy concealment. By linking family court and maternity records, our team, led by Dr Lucy Griffiths at Swansea, challenged faulty thinking about the fact that women were running away and hiding their pregnancies. In fact, the majority of women in care proceedings were known to midwifery at about 12 weeks into their pregnancies. We're also able to link family court and health data and identify high rates of mental health need, but also a real mismatch between what, were, what was um, we uncovered as treatable mental health conditions and high rates of emergency healthcare use, which suggests clear shortfalls in the pathway to mental health support. OK, so just moving on quickly. So what have we achieved? OK, this is a very whistle-stop higher level, but we've been, I think this has been a really successful programme of work, um, even though I say so myself, and it's led to major government investment in national preventative programmes. So for the first time, women who've had children removed from the care um, are able to in receive intensive therapeutic help beyond the close of care proceedings. We estimate that about 75 of 152 local authorities have developed services in England and a programme called Reflect has been expanded in Wales. So for people in the audience who are wondering about the value of the data, my experience is that actually you can really affect change. In relation to the Born Into Care series, um, the project's been equally successful in prompting local areas to develop intensive services for mothers early in pregnancy. We've also seen some really important instances of what I'm calling judicial activism at a case level, uh, where judges have been challenging local authorities to offer mothers mother and baby placements um, rather than separation at birth. Okay, so my final slide, I think I'm on time, I hope so. Um, I think this is why Data First is so important actually and, and the work that ADR UK is doing. Um, but I want to say that if we want to make progress, my experience of doing work with administrative data um, with an interdisciplinary team over um, a, more than a decade now is that if we want to maximise the value of large-scale data, it's much more than unlocking data sets. So you'll see the little plus on the 
on the top line there. Um, but I think what the Data First programme and ADR UK are really embodying in their activity is this kind of collaborative spirit. So they are enabling a range of researchers and government analysts to work together, underpinned by an ethos of collaboration, exchange, equitable relationships. And in doing so, they're shortening that the, the supply chain between research and policy demand. I think it's also re really, really important uh, that we build capability in the next generation, um, which is why I really like the fellowship program um, that's offered through ADR UK. Uh, and finally, and, but last but not least, it's really important that somebody, and at the moment um, UKR, UKRI are doing this, invests in the discovery work, work, so the higher risk work of data linkage, which is expensive. It doesn't have a fast yield, but it's fundamental to, to step change. Okay, thank you, Gavin. Thank you very much, Karen. While we uh, get you up on screen, a reminder to anyone watching us online, you can, of course, put your questions to Karen via Slido, and it's bit.ly slash slidodb42 if you're not already there. Uh, Karen, you've appeared on our screen. Perfect. Oh, just as I said, team symbol again. Yes, we can see you. Brilliant. Um, who would like to ask the first question of Karen? from IFG again. Um, the, in the way you presented that, you sort of presented research questions that then the data was able to answer. I was wondering if that was how you approached trying to get the data linked together and whether it helped having a clear question that then data providers could engage with or whether you were approaching this more as sort of general data ask and then the questions came after that. Um, definitely the questions came first. So, I mean, when we started out on this journey back in 2015, um, we were lucky that Nuffield was willing to take take a punt on us, really. Um, and, and I mean, because I'm, I am actually a former social worker before I became a, an applied social scientist. Um, and so I'd had a long-standing interest uh, uh, in the lives of women, really, in the justice system and how we could um, stop kind of annihilating women's journeys to adulthood through um, child removal, but with no follow-up support. So it's, it's not really an argument against child removal, but it is, you know, we, ha we have to be providing follow-up support. So yes, I definitely went to the data provider with a question. It was quite a contentious question, um, but there was a groundswell of interest in this uh, amongst advocacy groups as well. So it wasn't just myself. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question. Question first. Great, thank you. Uh, we've got one down here. Hi, um, I'm Olivia from HMCTS, and I was just wondering, when you get access to a new data set, like the big linked data sets and data first, what is the first thing that you do after you log on? So, so I, have I got a bit of an echo? Um, so basically, I um, would say that in order to understand, so we started working with Kafka standalone data, so pre this, um, you know, major investment in data linkage, and I think what's really important is, because I sort of understood the field and um, Dr. Bashar Alru, who was working with me, the data scientist, understood the structure of data. It was really through our combined efforts that we were able to make progress. So what I would say in terms of trying to understand a really complicated set of, you know, a, a relational database like Kafka's has, is it's absolutely vital that you understand 
what these legal orders mean, what these proceedings are, and that you work in that way where you're, you're both picking up hybrid knowledge. So, you know, Bashar now knows a lot about care proceedings, and I know a lot about things like SQL that I knew nothing about. And um, so you have to do that. And you've got to understand the data before you can make any headway. And and I think what I've seen is if people sort of rush that process, they can really get the wrong end of the stick. You have to know what kind of combination of orders are possible, which ones are errors. Um, you've got to understand, you know, what matters in terms of your findings. And I think without joining up the dots between the data scientists, the statisticians, the family lawyers, the policy people, it's quite difficult to do effective work. Thanks, Karen. Um, I'll come back to the room for the next question. Uh, we've got another one down the front. Hiya, um, Natasha Woodson from Ministry of Justice. Um, I've got a question of, obviously you've worked lots of people together in multidisciplinary teams with lots of different expertise. How have you found the process of um, bringing people who have very different perspectives together to, to then work functionally on, on this project? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's easy, but I think, I mean, I suppose because I've been managing interdisciplinary teams and across university teams for quite a while, I think what really matters is that, um, particularly early career colleagues, that they, they've got something that they own, that they feel ownership of. Um, obviously, you've got to make time for people to get onto the same page. But beyond that, I think what's really important is that you've got you encourage a spirit of collegiality amongst your team so that people can lead on, lead on outputs and they can take turns to do presentations, et cetera. That, that's what I think really matters is a spirit of collegiality and sharing. And I think if you start from that value position, then the rest sort of follows. But I don't, I don't think it's easy because you do have to learn. It's quite painful losing a, learning a new language. I actually wrote a paper about this where you perhaps feel that in picking up this hybrid knowledge, you're losing your own specialism. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I'll stay in the room for the next question. Hi, Emma Gordon, ADI UK. Great presentation, Karen, thank you. Thank you. You spoke really eloquently about the importance of that linkage between the CAFCAS data and the family justice data. What's the next linkage you would like to see uh, between that data to really understand what's going on in these people's lives? I mean, I, I think having sort of, I suppose, got to grips with a lot of what's going on for women in family justice, um, and for their children. I think what's really important is cross-justice insights. Um, so I've been saying for a long time that actually we, we think about family li the lives of families in silos, but actually it's often the same families who are involved with the criminal justice system, with addiction services, and we and we, you know, we fragment and, and sort of bracket our support to them. And and I think if we can sort of produce really compelling cross-justice insights and, and uh, justice health insights, we can make we can help um, service providers think about the sort of joint commissioning and pooling of budgets that's needed to really make a difference to lives. Because actually, if you're working with a, a vulnerable young woman, it's far better that services join up and fund one intensive outreach casework, caseworker than it is to offer bits of this and bits of that, like a you know, 10-week parenting programme and, you know, Come to some, you know, potentially online counselling around drugs. I think, I think that, you know, none of that will really work. But what you need is somebody 
uh, is the pooling of budgets for somebody to go out and form a relationship and actually steer somebody to to a journey to to recovery. Um, but at the moment, we see lots of wasted money, money going down the drain, actually, um, because our services don't work together. They're not joined up. And that's partly because our evidence is not joined up. Thanks. Uh, we've probably got time for one more question. Um, we've got one. Thank you. Um, my name is Conrad Jarrett. I'm from a company called Office Labs in, um, in the UK. Um, my question actually isn't really related to the company. It's more about um, fatherlessness and the, the family justice system and the impact that that has on criminal justice. We know that statistically 76% of young men in prison are from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists with anger management problems are from fatherless homes. 40% of children from single parent families are living in poverty and that about 85% of residency orders are automatically given to single mothers. There's clearly a problem and a connection with these aspects, poverty, fatherlessness. How do we get to use that data to inform better policy decisions and family court decisions to ensure that fatherlessness does not become an endemic problem that then has consequential effects on the streets of the UK and families in general? Okay, so it's a big question. Um, and I guess I've tended to specialise in the lives of, of women and children, but I would say to you there's a major agenda about fathers and trying to to understand loss, um, disenfranchisement, you know, state state disenfranchisement um, from the perspective of men. I've met lots of, you know, highly vulnerable men who've also been single parents, actually, um, over my years as, as a researcher. So there's a huge agenda here, and there is the data. Certainly in the family justice system, there's lots of data on men. There's lots of there's more missing data on dads, obviously, um, but there's data that can be put to really good use. And you know, I think that I think the field's wide open really for somebody to sort of seize seize the issue of fathers and fatherless families and and take that forward. So I hope that's a a little bit of an answer to your question, if not a full answer. Great, Karen. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that brings us to our final speaker of the evening, Natalie. Manage all these things. Thank you, Gavin. Um, good evening. It is such a pleasure to be back. Um, it's now nearly four years since I first stood in front of you at Databytes to present the Digital Justice Report, a 29-point plan for improving the data that's held by the courts that many of you in this room and online helped me to write. Since then, some things have changed, thanks to you all and to the tireless efforts of many of the brilliant civil servants in the Ministry of Justice, HMCTS and, and beyond, we now have, for the first time in our history, a repository of judgments and decisions preserved and made publicly available for free by the state at the National Archive. We have in place the beginnings of robust and transparent data governance mechanism, the Senior Data Governance Panel, um, to advise the Lord Chancellor and Lord Chief Justice on novel or contentious uses of data and their implications for the rule of law and access to justice. And you've heard this evening and at previous sessions about the fantastic progress that's been made on access to data for research, progress that's been facilitated by the Nuffield Foundation and by Emma Gordon at ADR UK, and their willingness to invest not just in projects, but in the infrastructure needed to support innovation, uh, to support innovative, impactful research, both now and in the future. 
And for myself, I've now received some comms and public affairs training, which means I no longer write policy reports with 29 recommendations. So it's been a real, <laughs> it's been a real journey of growth for all of us. But whilst we have seen progress, too much remains unchanged. I'm still terrified of Gavin's timer, for example. But in all seriousness, the justice system is decades behind other areas of social policy when it comes to using data to identify and understand problems, design better policies and services to address them. There are still too many gaps in the data that's available to those within the system, let alone outside it. In 2023, at an operational level, the way we run our justice system is sadly still equivalent to running a hospital without knowing how many operating theatres you have, what illnesses your patients are suffering from, or whether they survive their treatment. This would matter even in the best of times, but as anyone paying even cursory attention to the news will tell you, these are not the best of times. Trust and confidence in policing is at an all-time low, and case backlogs leave um, victims in limbo and people in jail, sometimes for years, without a guilty verdict. Barristers are on strike, prisons are at capacity, our courts and tribunal buildings are literally crumbling. In the context of a justice system that is at breaking point, it's all too easy for policymakers of whatever persuasion to throw up their hands and say, well, what would you have me do? Spend money on data or fix whatever fire happened to land on my desk this week? What I would say and what we need to say as a community in response is this. Fixing justice data is not a nice to have and it is not a distraction from the crises of the day. It's integral to solving them. And here's where you start. Firstly, you need to improve data collection. There are still far too many basic gaps in the information that's collected about users of the justice system and their experience within it. The Centre for Public Data's research presented at the last of these sessions exposed basic gaps in demographic data, remand, sentencing and low-level offending. Civil justice has been described as a data desert by the Civil Justice Council. Our work with victims groups in the context of the Victims and Prisoners Bill has revealed the extent to which victims and their experiences simply aren't counted by the agencies of the criminal justice system. The police count offences, the CPS count defendants, and the courts count cases, but no one is counting the people who rely on the justice system for protection the most. <coughs> the absence of a complete record of judgments, decisions, and sentencing remarks also undermines our ability to have informed conversations about the adequacy of our laws and the independence of our judiciary. See, for example, discussions last year around reforms to judicial review or the Human Rights Act. Investment in new digital infrastructure and the repository at the National Archives means increasingly we have the tools to fix these issues and take forward some of the things that Elizabeth mentioned in her talk. What's missing now is the will to act. Secondly, we need to invest in transforming our existing data into insight. Often, as Amy alluded to in her talk, data gaps are a function not of non-collection, but of the failure to transform the data that is collected. For example, data on financial remedy orders, which is critical to understanding the fairness of decisions made regarding the, the, regarding the finances of separating couples, is collected. But it's not held in a format that's readily analysable. Instead, it's stored as PDFs. Natural language processing tools can help with text classification and the transformation of this data into a format that is usable at much lower cost than previously would have been possible. Unlike, NHS, unlike the NHS, large parts of the justice system have failed to invest in the infrastructure or the staff needed to clean and maintain data, and this needs to change. So basically, more resource to Amy and her team and more resource at the front line. 
Thirdly, we need to address information asymmetries and silos and regulate the law tech sector. Too much justice data exists behind paywalls. This creates an unequal playing field for companies, for researchers, and for charities who are seeking to develop products and insights to improve access to justice. There is, and has been for a while now, a regulatory lacuna around many areas of the law tech industry. For example, the use of predictive analytics. This stymies responsible innovation and encourages those in charge of the system to try to manage risks and stakeholder concerns through restricting access to data which should be in the public domain, undermining open justice. Robust regulation and meaningful redress for harm is crucial to reduce um, concerns that drive barriers to better data collection and use. Fourthly, we need to strengthen existing engagement with stakeholders and the public. Too often, the ministry is left unaware by the issues with existing data and their real-life impact because there simply isn't a standing forum for these issues to be raised and addressed. One example is the issue caused by legislation that prevents the publication of data about claimants in civil cases in the county courts. This means that people in debt are unable to find out who they owe money to without ringing the court directly. This is stressful for them and wastes time and money for the court service. The Registry Trust, whose brilliant chief executive Lex is here tonight, the charity responsible for publishing data on CCJs have attempted to raise this issue for years but been unable to find the right person to speak to. Augmenting the senior data governance panel with a court data user group and a secretariat to triage these issues would address this. In addition, there is an absolute imperative to improve engagement with the public, to understand public attitudes to the collection, sharing and use of justice data. This is particularly vital in the context of plans for an expanded role for AI and research that we conducted that revealed deep public scepticism about this. Investing in mechanisms to ensure that policy in this space develops in line with public expectations is vital to maintain public trust not just in the use of justice data, but in the justice system itself. Fifthly, and finally, learning. <laughs> finally, we need to reduce barriers to acting on insight. Being open and transparent with the public and with stakeholders about data collection and use is a prerequisite for maintaining public confidence. But just as important and just as vital is demonstrating to the public that when data does reveal concerns, these will be acted on the recent National Audit Office report into the court reform programme stated that HMCTS data analysis had revealed that users from minoritised communities spent longer on digital divorce and probate services and had lower satisfaction rates. But despite this, action still hadn't been taken, although it may have been now, Amy. Um, once issues are identified, they need to be addressed. Structural changes are required to close the gap between identifying problems and putting in place solutions. And those structural changes need to be tied to accountability mechanisms for doing so. This is key to securing more of the brilliant impact that Karen described in her talk. I want to close by saying this. Improving data is not a panacea for poor practice or for underfunding. But without it, we lack the ability to tell where problems exist or whether we fix them. Justice data matters because the justice system matters. And we will not see meaningful and sustainable improvement in the system without meaningful improvement in the data that enables us to understand where problems are and hold decision makers accountable for change. We've achieved a lot in four years, but there's still so much to do and in many ways more than ever at stake. Let's see what we can achieve in the next four. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Natalie. Um, a reminder, if you're watching us online, use Slido, bit.ly slash slidodb42. Um, I'm going to start with an online question. Um, so Anonymous, so good evening to you, Anonymous, says, funders come and funders go in all fields. As you move on, and as some of you may know, Natalie will be leaving the Legal Education Foundation after eight years, um, fairly soon. Um, as you move on and your work continues, what insights about the importance of this work would you like people at other funders to know? Oh, I mean, it's so important. Um, I have felt and feel for a while now that whilst we have seen, um, particularly on the data side, we've seen some brilliant investment by foundations in the work that's needed to understand, you know, the implications of automated decision making. We have seen a cluster of kind of small, well, a cluster of funders that have emerged around issues in ethics and AI, and that's great. But too often, I think discussions about that are siloed. So the justice system is seen as a special soldier. And actually, the funding that needs to be forthcoming to kind of catch up to the ambition in the justice space just hasn't been there. Um, so I think what I would um, say is it's really important that, you know, we see that level of, that we stop this kind of culture of legal exceptionalism, which I think makes people feel like the justice system is, is scary and separate and something that's distinct from issues in broader society. The justice system is the safety net. It's the fundamental like ground rules that support all other areas of social policy. And understanding it and how it operates is critical to unpicking wicked issues across the whole of the rest of the sect or the whole of the rest of the state, really. So all I would say is, yeah, it's, it's vitally important that funding continues. Thanks. Uh, I'll come to the room for the next one down here at the front. Hi, I'm Charles from um, High Free. Um, it might be a straightforward answer. If there is an appetite um, from external companies and, charity, and charities to help you with your data and insights and innovation, what type of hurdles do they face when trying to do that type of work? Well, I think there, are certainly, there certainly is an appetite, and I think if anyone um, read the kind of... Um, there was a, the House of Lords committee that looked at home, did a brilliant report looking at the use of sort of data analytics by police forces across the UK and found that actually there was a real sort of... I think they described it as a wild west in the criminal justice space of companies that were seeking to kind of sell products into policing. But, I mean, if you were thinking about um, the barriers to accessing and using court data, they are vast. I mean, the, the fact is at the moment that the, there are huge disparities between the data about what happens in the court system that's available to people who can afford to pay the big publishers like LexisNexis or, you know, Thomson Reuters or Westlaw for access to data versus... Um, if you're a small startup starting out, you know, the, until the National Archives um, solution was put in place for making data from the courts available, there really wasn't a free-to-access source of, um, you know, data that can be bulk downloaded. And I think there are still these huge information disparities between, you know, the information that's held by either repeat players like insurance companies or legal publishers who've collected repositories behind paywalls, so I think access to data is one. I think the, the regulatory uncertainty around, you know, what, what, particularly when it comes to things like predicting case outcomes or providing relational expertise, we've still not had a really clear statement on what it is permissible to do or what uses of data government wishes to encourage, and I think that makes it really hard. We hear from 
like responsible startups and charities all the time. Like we, we think we can do this thing. We think it might really help with this huge access to justice challenge, but we just don't know what the rules are. And therefore, why would you put in all that cost up front? Which is why it's so important, you know, that we get the kind of regulation piece right. Thanks. I'll go online for the next question from Gemma Buckland. Uh, neither the Criminal Justice Inspectorates, HMPPS, or other commissioners of services linked to the justice system collect meaningful data to understand impact or long-term outcomes. Are you aware of any initiatives that are seeking to address this? Oh, it's really hard. I mean, to be honest, um, we've been looking internationally. So Finland has actually really, there's some really interesting work that's been done linking health data to criminal justice data in Finland. And that's made possible by the fact that they have unique identifiers for both victims and for defendants. And it's just, I mean, they also, it's worth saying they have the unique identifiers, but they also have really robust, strong data governance in place, which gives you the confidence, because I can hear Med Confidential in the back screaming at the idea of, <laughs> <laughs> of unique identifiers for justice. Um, but I think that's a really exciting example of, you know, what is possible. Um, and also, I mean, I would bow to Lizzie's expertise, you know, and the examples that she's drawn upon in Australia and the US as well. I think it's worth looking there. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come to the room for the next question. I think Med Confidential's hand is, is the next <laughs> one that's up. Um. Rousing talk, as always. Uh, you wrote a report and government did a bunch of it in four years, which is unheard of in the NHS. So, you know, well done. Um, assuming there wasn't anything you cut for time, what do you want the people who come to events at the Institute for Government to go out and do to help? Because, you know, storming a court is probably not quite it. No, I wouldn't suggest that anyone goes and storms the court. I mean, look, I think one of the most powerful things is, although we have seen some traction, so Lizzie actually worked with um, Justice Lab on amendments to the Victims Bill. The Victims Bill, unusually for primary legislation, has a whole section all on data and the potential role of data in improving experience for victims. But if you listen to the debates that have been had in Parliament, it's not been discussed once. There have been some concerns raised about the governance, which is right. But really, I think what is incumbent on all of us to do is to keep making the case for why this matters. And how you do this is to keep doing what Karen did, bringing it back to the people that are affected. In the work that we did, we spoke on the victims, where we spoke to the Susie Lamplew Trust, who gave us examples of victims of stalking who'd reported their perpetrator to the police 125 times, but because they'd been given a new case incident number each time, those reports hadn't been linked and no action had been taken until the victim was left for dead. Now, I mean, that is, it's at the extreme end of the example, but this is what we're talking about. The failure of our data systems creates these life or death challenges for people. And the more we can do as a community to raise up the examples, to keep explaining in human terms why it matters, admitting that not everyone like us is as interested in data, <laughs> shockingly. But I, I, I think it's really that, isn't it? It's keep making the case for why it matters, why it's so important, why it should matter to politicians, why it matters to their constituents, and just don't stop. That's the big message. Excellent. It's a shame that wasn't the last question, but we do have time uh, yeah. for one more, and we've got uh, a hand down here. Thank you. Paul Atherton, Museum of Homelessness. Um, I'd just be really interested in where you see the future of regulation in respect to data with sort of the increasing advancements of sort of artificial intelligence and everything else that's coming now at a daily rate, let alone a weekly or monthly rate, and how we can protect that regulation and future-proof it so it doesn't get reversed, which we so often see with these kind of things. 
Well, firstly, I want to say it's amazing to have you here. I'm a huge fan of the work that you do, and thank you. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, we worked with the journalist Maeve McLennan, and you did huge amounts of work on you know, counting deaths of homeless people, and it's a real data gap. So thank you for being here, and thank you for the question. I think it's going to be a real challenge, isn't it? Um, because I think we see that the trouble is, and I'm, I don't want to go into a big debate about the AI bill, but I do think there is, although the government ambition is, you know, cross-government vision for AI, actually a lot of the problems and the challenges are sector-specific, and I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of that. How you prevent harm in like data governance and regulation is keeping your arrangements for the use of data tightly tied to the problems that you're trying to solve and making sure that you know, you've got a public mandate for solving those problems using data. I think the double challenge we face in the justice system is for too long we've allowed you know, we've allowed a situation to persist where the public feel really disconnected from justice and from the courts, and we've told the public that what happens there is, you know, too complicated for them to understand. I don't actually think that's true. But it means then when you layer data on top of that and you're relying on, you know, public opinion to actually help drive better practice, I mean, you've seen knocking down some of the worst excesses of data use in health and education has only come because there's been a public outcry. And I do worry injustice, where's that going to come from? So I think there's a really strong agenda here that's around making the public better aware of what justice data is, why it matters, and investing in the types of tools that we've seen in health, like understanding patient data was a great initiative. I'd really like to see something similar for justice. But I think we all need to be watching this space because I don't think it's going to police itself. But thank you for the question. Thank you for your work. Uh, and an excellent call to action. Um, so Natalie, thank you not only for the wonderful presentation tonight, but it's been a pleasure working with you on two other data bytes uh, before tonight as well. And thank you for everything that you've done uh, in the last eight years um, on this. So thank you very much yeah, indeed. Um, a few quick parish notices before I let those of you in the room uh, onto the balcony for uh, a short reception afterwards. Uh, we will be hoping to get video of this on the IFG website within 24 hours, where Lindsay Hoy will be very pleased. He can choose which order he watches everyone in. You can already watch this back as live on Slido and YouTube, and I think you probably know the Slido link by now. Uh, the IFG's next public event uh, is on has, the civil, has civil service impartiality had its day? Uh, nice, easy question for Tuesday, the 23rd of May. We'll be back with Data Bytes on Monday, the 5th of June. Uh, there are also events coming up on devolution and the Constitution and on SPADS. Uh, I mentioned during my intro that we've had lots of other justice presentations in the past. Of course, number 40 was the uh, first of the two-part series that we conclude tonight with the Nuffield Foundation. Uh, you'll also have heard ADR UK mentioned a lot uh, this evening. Lots of presentations from ADR UK in our back catalogue, including on Data First and the Sale Data Bank, uh, which you have mentioned. Uh, if you're interested in sponsoring a future Data Bytes, please do hang around afterwards and come and speak to us. Um, and all that remains for me to say are three very big thank yous. First of all, to you, the audience, here in the room and online, some brilliant questions tonight. Uh, a huge thank you to the Nuffield Foundation for their support with this event and our previous Justice Special and the forthcoming report that will uh, bring the lessons together from both of those events and some supplementary interviews. But please do uh, join me in a huge thank you to our wonderful speakers tonight. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>